Welcome to Crossing the Tape. Today is our first official episode. Last week we did our pilot, and on the pilot episode we talked about a case a little bit and gave you a tease, and today that's going to be the focus of our podcast. I'm Hillary. I'm Brendan. Shall we begin? Yes. This is a case known as the trick-or-treat murder. And that brings us to Halloween night 1957 in Sun Valley uh, neighborhood in Los Angeles. The home of Peter and Betty Fabiano. They'd been dealing with trick-or-treaters all night. And we mentioned last week, the Halloween is the only night of the year that you're going to open the door to a stranger in a mask. True. So it really wasn't any big deal when they heard a knock at the door. But it was a little odd because the neighborhood was already quieting down. They'd turn the lights off for the evening. It was getting late. About 11 p.m., so late for trick-or-treaters. But there's this knock at the door. And so Peter, justifiably annoyed, heads downstairs, gets what was left in the candy bowl. And he opens the door, and he sees what you would expect. There's a person standing before him. They've got face paint and an eye mask. A khaki jacket, red gloves, just seems like a cheap costume. Probably some teenager still out waking people up trying to get a little bit more candy before they call it a night. And so Peter says to him, Isn't it a little bit late to still be out doing this? And from what Betty could hear upstairs, there was a deep voice that she described as a man trying to sound like a woman. And the voice just simply said, No. And from the brown paper candy bag they were holding, a gunshot rang out, rattled the entire house, and Betty rushed downstairs and saw her husband lying in a pool of his own blood, a gunshot wound right beneath his heart. Her daughter ran down the street to a neighbor's house who was an LAPD officer. And, of course, police were summoned to the scene and began their investigation. The only witness to the event was a teenager who was still out who saw a car speeding off down the street. Other than a speeding car and a deep voice heard from upstairs, there were no other indicators of who might be the culprit. You're our resident CSI on the podcast. Let's say you're dispatched to a gunshot victim. They're deceased, so obviously they can't give you their side of the story. What's the first thing, the key thing that you want to look for on a gunshot victim? That would be shell casings. For the the layman, the lay folk out there, what can you do evidentiarily? with shell casings um with shell casings of course we're talking 1957 so they didn't have the technology we do now um in the 50s they were able to trace guns by serial number but they couldn't trace them as we do now today when you collect shell casings at a crime scene the purpose of it is because each shell casing is as unique as a fingerprint Mm -hmm. and that's because Um, 
when the bullet ejects and the firing pin makes a specific mark called a striation and it's different and it's unique to every single gun. Um, even if it's the same manufacturer, the gun has a unique mark. Um, so the way the <clears throat> firing pin basically stamps the bullet when it mm -hmm. strikes and causes the bullet to fire, the way it stamps that casing is going to be unique to every firing pin and every gun. Yes. it's Each one is different. Mm -hmm. And nowadays we have NIBIN, which is the National Integrated Ballistic Information Network. And lab technicians can take a casing and match it or compare it to other known casings in the database to see if there's been if that gun has been used in another crime but that wasn't developed till 1999 um, prior so, to that it no was no luck here no prior to that it was strictly serial numbers um, they didn't have much to match the casing except for maybe caliber but that doesn't give you a specific person's gun right so we've got a gunshot victim first thing we want check for shell casings but there's a little bit of a curveball here no shell casings at the scene and in my experience and I'm sure yours as well the only reason you would have a shooting with no casings be if the shooting took place someone was shooting from a vehicle so mm -hmm. any casings that ejected from the firearm would have landed inside the vehicle and not remained at the scene or the person stopped to pick them up which if you're in a situation where you're actually I mean I guess unless you're a full-blown psychopath and it doesn't bother you when you're firing a gun in a high adrenaline moment like that either in self-defense or I would assume to harm someone you're gonna suffer what's called auditory exclusion which means the extremely loud pop of the gun isn't going to affect your hearing. You're probably not going to hear anything at all because the adrenaline's pumping. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to hear shell casings hit the ground, jingling around. And if anyone ever has ever tried to clean up their brass after range day, you, don't, you never know exactly where they're going to eject from a gun, just kind of a general direction when you go to pick up your casings. So, so you'd if have you have to have time. Right. If you can't, you didn't hear where they landed. It's nighttime, presumably dark out, even if there's some street lights. You would have to have a minute to look around and check for them. So we've got a vehicle speeding off, which means the shooting could have taken place from the, the vehicle. But we know he went to the door. Right. But we've established pretty quick. We know from what Betty heard there was a person at the door and the car sped off shortly after the gunshot so we know they probably didn't have time to pick up their casings so the third reason why there wouldn't be any left at the scene would be because there were no casings ejected from the firearm mm -hmm. and the only type of gun that I know of well handgun at least that wouldn't eject like that would be either a revolver or like a Derringer pistol mm -hmm. where you have to physically remove the shells yourself after expending them. <clears throat> so we've got 
no casings. We've got a dead guy, and we've got a speeding car. So the next option for investigation is to figure out, well, who would want to do this? And while it seems similar to a gang-style attack that was becoming more prevalent at the time mm. in Los Angeles, and still today, there wasn't any indication that you know, any street gangs would want to come after Peter Fabian. <clears throat> he had one previous charge of bookkeeping, but that was several years before, and not something he needed to worry about anymore, and there shouldn't be anyone coming after him at this point. So this wasn't a gang attack. Probably wasn't someone from his past coming back after him for some minor bookkeeping issue. So they ask his wife, who is it, who do you know would want to hurt your husband? Mm -hmm. And she gave the name of a close family friend of theirs, a woman named Joan Rabel. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> now, Peter and Betty, they married in New York a few years prior to moving to L.A. in 1956. And when they were... When they got there, they opened a couple of beauty salons. <clears throat> and they needed someone to work the front desk. So Peter hired a young lady by the name of Joan Rabel. Now, she became quickly became a good friend of the Fabianos. Especially Betty. Yes. And... Betty explained to police that her and Peter's marriage wasn't always so great. They had spent a little time separated, and during that time, she and Joan became quite close and actually developed a full-on romantic relationship. But eventually Betty decided it was important to work out her marriage with Peter, and she agreed to stop seeing Joan and get back with Peter. Mm -hmm. And Joan was actually fired around that time by Peter. Right. And it's it's alleged that after she was fired by Peter, that's when she started developing a scheme. Right. And Joan, we come to find out, is quite the schemer. And eventually she's accused of some pretty strange, spooky scheming. But she was questioned pretty quickly by the detectives, but she denied any involvement, insisted she didn't know anything about this guy being shot, and because their only evidence at the time was a body, a voice, and a speeding car, they really didn't have anything to further implicate her. So she had to be let go because, unless she was just going to admit to wrongdoing, she was just another maybe on their list. So as the... LAPD detectives were running out of luck and the case was looking like maybe it was going to go cold they received an anonymous tip two weeks after the murder that led them to the murder weapon the mystery tip brought them to Bullock's department store in Los Angeles and specifically to a locker and inside that locker they did find a 38 Smith & Wesson revolver which, of course, explains the lack of shell casings. Mm -hmm. And they were able to figure out that the locker had been signed out to a woman by the name of Goldine Pizer. 
I don't know why she had a locker at this store. Cause she wasn't an employee there, right? No. You did a little more research on Goldine and Joan. I think she was a secretary at a hospital. Something to that effect. <clears throat> Actually, I think she was a lab technician. Okay. At a hospital. Children's hospital. So, but, that doesn't explain why yeah. she had a locker <laughs> at a store. Yes. And I do love the the classic trope of an anonymous tip. But it's awfully strange. Someone had to have known what happened and why she had why she would have a gun in her locker and contacted police. So I'm guessing she got a little blabbermouth with someone close to her and they weren't gonna keep that kind of secret. Right. That or she it was her. Right. Because her guilty conscience may have We'll get into that a little bit later. Mm -hmm. It could have been herself. Well, this lady, Goldine Pizer, uh, just so happened to be a very good friend of our Joan Rabel. And Mm -hmm. Goldine was also of the same lesbian lifestyle as Joan, and at least for a time, Betty. Mm -hmm. And they'd been friends for a couple months and Goldine was just recently divorced from her prior husband and was looking for new companionship and I guess more trying to be herself. So it didn't take long for her and Joan to start up a bit of a relationship. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, with the name Goldine, she was easy to track down and detectives brought her in for questioning and she didn't really put up as much of a fight as Joan. Not at all. She sang like a canary. Yes. (laughs) I mentioned before you did a little extra research on Joan and Goldine. You want to tell us about their story? Sure. So, um, as you mentioned, they all had similar interests and were interested in women. And Joan, who had become a very good friend of Betty... Uh, and and Peter, really, she decided that she liked Betty, and she wanted Betty for herself, but I'm, I'm going to assume a little bit that she recognized that Goldine liked her, Joan, mm-hmm. and so she brought her into the, the plot because she knew she could use her, unfortunately, because she recognized that Goldine liked her. Um, so it was said that she manipulated Goldine quite a bit. Um, they would have dis- long discussions about how Peter was awful to Betty and he was dealing, allegedly dealing drugs and he was abusive and he was just terrible. And so she filled Goldine's head with all of these things. All this nonsense. Right. And Joan knew exactly what she was doing. And she was playing Goldine to do her dirty work so she could have Betty. Um, we mentioned that Goldine was very eager to speak to the police. Um, she basically said, too, that the reason they were able to find the gun so easily was because she didn't know what to do with it. Um, she said, she specifically said Joan had not instructed her how to dispose of the gun. So to me, that tells me that Joan had orchestrated the whole thing, told Goldine what to do, 
but she didn't tell her what to do with the gun, so she didn't know what to do and stuck it in that locker. And she also confessed to police that um, with in regard to other evidence, she cut up and burned the clothes. And the costume. The costume. Essentially. And she allegedly only had two bullets on her, and one was used to kill, and one was supposedly in the jacket. Mm-hmm. So she... She didn't even bring a full gun. No. It was she... just, here, take this, shoot him and run. Mm-hmm. And there's a spare in there, I guess, if, if you need it. If you need it. And so she pretty much told police that Joan had put her up to it um, just because she kind of used her like a pawn in her plot to get Betty. Yeah, and I don't, I don't want to say, like, oh, poor Goldine, because she was still Mm-mm. complicit in this thing. Of course. But in her mind... She's, one, trying to impress this woman that she's interested in. Mm -hmm. And, two, she thinks this is, like, the last resort and the only way to help this poor woman, Betty. Who's abused, And save her from her terrible, abusive, drug dealer husband. And none of those claims against Peter were ever substantiated. No. There was never any evidence that he was dealing drugs or that he was abusive to Betty. No. By all accounts, it seems like they just kind of had a rocky marriage. And that may have been because of Betty's other interests. Right. And it ended up in you know, this quarrel over who gets to love Betty the most. Mm-hmm. And he ended up dead because of it at the hands of a woman who was trying to impress a ma- his you know, manipulator. Yeah. Her, the wife's lover. Mm-hmm. So it's, kind of, it's really a tangled web. Right. But it seems like Goldine never would have reached this point if it wasn't for... For Joan pushing her. Prompting her to do all this. So with Goldine's confession, they were both charged with first-degree murder, Joan and Goldine. Um, You had a little more info about their... I guess initially they both pled not guilty, right? Yes. Um, That was the initial plea. Goldine alleged uh, that she was, you know, talked into it by Joan, but when it got to the plea deal, she pled not guilty by reason of insanity. And her reasoning for it was because she said that Joan had cast a spell on her and she could not resist it. And, you know... That, of course, is nonsense. Yeah. But... <laughs> we don't know if she means, like, oh, I was, I was just so entranced by her beauty. That kind of Taken spell, by or her. Like, or... no, she did some witchcraft over me. It, she kind of alluded to police. It was more of a witchcraft thing, but I think that was, you know, grasping at straws. Right. She was looking for any way out because mm-hmm. she had the gun. She admitted she did it. Right. She probably, in hindsight, she realized, well, that was a real stupid reason to... Yeah. If this lady wanted to kill the guy, she should have gone and done it herself mm-hmm. instead of dragged me into it. So she was probably looking for any... Any escape she could. Yeah. <laughs> Even though her hands were really the dirtiest, she wanted to put it off on someone else, if she could. But that didn't... The insanity plea didn't hold up in court. No. Um, I guess they were evaluated by psychiatrists, and eventually the prosecutors landed on a plea deal, knocking it down from... First degree murder to second degree murder. Um, well, and their sentence was 
five years to life. Which seems lenient for a premeditated murder. Yes. But I guess that's a hell of a... That's a pretty kind plea agreement. Right. And and it's it's also large. I mean, anything could... It could be any of the years in between. You know, it could be as little as five years, or it could be as long as life. Yeah, the rest of your natural but life. five years, to me, is very lenient. Yeah. I would be more comfortable with, like, 20, 25 right. to life. Right. But the more things change, the more they stay the same. The judges back in 1958 were also dragged through the mud for mm-hmm. giving a lenient sentence. So, and people didn't even have Facebook to right. they didn't. <laughs> spout their anger at, why are they letting these criminals out? And they were eventually let out. There's not exact dates on their release, uh, but eventually both women were released mm-hmm. from prison. But you mentioned their demeanor in the courtroom was they were acting a little strange maybe they didn't really feel the remorse that they wanted people to think they had well one of them did Mm -hmm. and that's what I meant about Goldine that she as we said she was very willing to speak to police Mm -hmm. and uh, according to a couple articles their demeanors in court were very different and they were very telling to their personalities Goldine was said to have been crying and remorseful and just kind of a mess. And Joan was said to be hollow-eyed and had no emotion, and she would casually smile throughout the trial. So to me, that's pretty indicative of her personality in particular. If you had to, we're not psychiatrists, but if you had to slap a diagnosis on one of these women it would probably be joan right she's showing Mm -hmm. some narcissism and her lack of remorse Mm -hmm. is pretty telling yeah and i kind of think goldine she as you mentioned she is not innocent by any means no she still made that choice to pull that trigger but i kind of think she was easily manipulated just because she was new to dating women she was just getting into this new lifestyle and being herself suppressing it for years yes so i kind of think she was um you know she was easily manipulated because she was she found someone vulnerable who was willing to give her what she was looking for right companionship that wasn't a farce like her marriage right and again that by no means means Goldine's innocent. She is not. But I think it explains a little bit why maybe she went through it and why Joan was able to manipulate her and use her so steadily. Yeah, by all accounts, Goldine felt bad about mm-hmm. everything in the end, at least. And, Joan, and she knew that she'd been right. taken and tricked and convinced to pull off this terrible thing for someone else who mm-hmm. didn't really care about her. You know, what's interesting, too, is that when they were released, it said that Goldine went on to have another career and kind of went on with life, and Joan disappeared. Yeah, Nobody, Joan kept a yeah. low profile after her release. There's really not any information about her. Uh, Goldine died at the age of 83, and that was in 1998, and she'd been out of prison for some time. Right. Uh, we know that Joan was also released, but no exact date for that either. And there's 
no information about what she did with her life after prison. I would assume, since she was in the same age group, that by now she's passed. Yeah, you'd assume. But... Otherwise, she'd be in or over her hundreds. Mm-hmm. But it, it's interesting to me that the master manipulator disappeared. Yeah. Yeah, she at least initially got what she wanted. Mm-hmm. Killed the guy that had stolen her girl, as far as she was concerned. And then got released on a pretty lenient sentence. Right. And may have just carried on, may have started using a fake name. Yeah, that that's a possibility too. It wouldn't surprise me if she just moved out of Los Angeles and picked up her life somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Changed her name. And who knows how many good deeds she's done to make up for it or how many terrible things she's done since that True. we just don't know about. Uh, but Betty Fabiano had a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, in 1966, she ended up remarrying, sold the beauty salons, and passed away at the age of 81 in 1999. So she continued on, lived a pretty full life, mm-hmm. was able to get past it and find companionship of her own somewhere else. But it's still shocking. I think the most surprising thing to me is the five-year sentence. Yeah. Because this was definitely premeditated. Well, of course this it was. A, no, it a was... whoops. This was... No, it was definitely premeditated. And in fact, one of the articles I read, they were discussing what to do. They were discussing whether they should poison him or use a knife or use a gun. And they decided gun and Halloween because they could they could be in a mask. Right. So it was definitely premeditated, which five years is extremely lenient, especially for the 1950s. Right. And the, yeah, the, the lengths that they went to... It wasn't just, we're going to go over there and shoot him tomorrow. They had planned what mm-hmm. day so that they would have a mask and could conceal the gun in the in what would seem like a bag of, you know, a their trick-or-treating bag. bag. Unidentifiable. Would be able to get out of the neighborhood without mm-hmm. being seen because it's late and everybody's home. And they'd be able to blend into a crowd easily, you know, with the trick-or-treaters being, yeah. disappearing, no problem. And from what I saw... Joan and uh, Goldine were only friends for about three months. Yeah, it wasn't very they, long. I read that too. That it only took three months for Joan to convince Goldine to kill someone for her. <laughs> which is not only impressive on Joan's part, but it, that means there was three months of, you know, you need to help me get rid of this guy. Right, and that means she planned it. I, I feel like she planned it ahead of time. I mean, she I she think, had an yeah. idea and targeted her. Yeah, she knew she wanted, she needed to find an accomplice. Mm-hmm. And this was her end goal. And she unfortunately fell on Goldine mm-hmm. and convinced her to take part in the crime. It's a, a bummer of a story, mm-hmm. but at least they were caught. It's a shame they didn't spend the rest of their lives in prison for what True. they had done. But at least they were caught. Yes. And, and Betty was able to, to regain on. some normalcy and move on with her life. Right. Which is something that in investigations you hope for for victims' families. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no undoing what's been done. But hopefully getting the conviction or solving the cold case, hopefully it can lead to at least some closure. And it looks right. like Betty did get that even though... Mm-hmm. 
at least one of the people who killed her husband ended up outliving her as a free woman. Yeah, which is sad. Yeah. That's, that was my saddest takeaway from it is that Betty got to carry on with her life, died at 81, and mm-hmm. <laughs> the person who shot her husband got a couple more years after that. Yeah. That's, free. That's outside too bad. Of prison. I think that's everything I've got on this case. Did you have anything else? I don't believe so. I think we covered it. I think that wraps up the first episode of Crossing the Tape. We'll be back in a couple weeks with episode two with yet another exciting and probably sad, honestly. <laughs> True. <laughs> but that comes with this line of work. Right. Um, unfortunate case that hopefully has a at least somewhat of a positive resolution. Right. But we will see you again soon. Thanks for listening. Signing off.